We are in the middle of a series on rediscovering God in the Old Testament. Um, here's how we're going to begin. We're going to be looking at Elijah today. Uh, I was thinking, you know, what do you title this passage? As I was looking at it, studying this week, and I said, you know, you just tie, when you go to Elijah, you just title it Elijah. And those of you that haven't been introduced to Elijah, you're in for a treat. Or you might be thinking, I don't want any more treats like Elijah. I wrote, Let's move on to somebody else. Elijah's a little too rough. Elijah's a little too tough. Elijah's a, I don't know what he is. I still haven't got my hands and my mind around him yet, but I like the guy. I can't help but like him. Um, here's what's happened. There's a fellow PCA church planner, pastor, leader now of a gospel movement that's sweeping the American church. Uh, he's a seminary professor, New York Times best-selling author, and whom the secular press has dubbed the C.S. Lewis of this generation. Over the years, he comes across a lot of people who say, I was raised in the church, but now I don't believe in God. I, I reject God. And he said earlier in his days, earlier in his ministry, in the, the first decade of his ministry, when he encountered those folks in his church, whether it was in Virginia or now up in New York, he would... Uh, begin to listen to their reasons for not God, and he would argue for reasons for God, right? I mean, that's a normal approach that we all would take. We'll say, well, why have you walked out of the church? Why have you left God? What are your reasons? You listen to the reasons for not God, you give reasons for God. Now he says he does this. He asks, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Tell me about the God you've rejected. And then he says... Ten times out of nine, he will say, I'm an ordained minister of Christ's church, and I don't believe in that God either. Now, all of us here today come in and have beliefs about God that are not true, that God doesn't believe in either that the Bible doesn't believe in. Now, we're in the middle of this series on rediscovering God through the Old Testament. What we've been doing is we've been looking at first encounters of very famous celebrities in the Bible. We've looked at Moses. We've looked at Isaiah, Jacob. We've looked at uh, Joshua. Uh, and the goal through all of these is to have a personal encounter with God yourself. The goal through all these first encounters with God is for you and I to have an encounter, a living encounter with God, a fresh encounter with God. Maybe to discover Him for the first time, maybe to rediscover Him in ways that you haven't discovered Him before. To know Him, to be more deeply impacted by the wonder of God in your life. In one sense, for God to be made more personally real to you. So this journey has led a lot of us at this time, because we've been doing it probably, this is our sixth week, we've been discovering, many of us, we've been discovering that we've been resisting a God in the Bible that does not exist. Some of us are Christians, and we can't shake this deep resistance to God that's lodged in our heart. And this resistance to God that's lodged in our heart brings this guilt that we're resisting God, right? That's happening. Others of us, we started out inside the church, but now have ended up outside the church. And the reason why we're outside the church is not because we've rejected the God of the Bible. It's because we're resisting 
a distorted view of the God of the Bible, right? And then for some of us, this might have came officially with some teaching. You might have grown up in the church, in your family. You had official teaching that created this certain view of God. It was a distorted view of God. You've shaped your life around that view of God, and you've now since rejected that view of God, thinking that you've rejected the true God of the Bible when you haven't. It's a distorted view. Others of us, though, it might not have been officially taught in our church, might not have been officially taught in our home, but it's been officially caught in the church more than taught and caught in our home more than taught. In other words, the culture we've grown up in, the embodied beliefs of our family and our churches have created a distorted view of God that we've rejected and walked away from once starting out in the church. In other words, this, affirming the data of salvation by grace and trusting in salvation by grace so that it shapes you into a gracious person are two completely different worlds. Having the data of God and having an experiential reality of that data are two different worlds. Okay? Now, there's others of us, look, we've been skeptical of Christianity our whole life. When you look in at Christianity, you don't like what you see. Now, what this series is going to push you on is this. Possibly, when you look in from the outside at Christianity, what you're resisting is a distorted view of God, not the real thing. Okay? Now, there's another completely different section of us. There's a section of us that are resisting a God in the Bible that does not exist in the Bible. But then there's a section of us that are relying on a God in the Bible that doesn't exist in the Bible. In other words, we're realizing we've been following and believing things about God that aren't true. And it's real difficult to dislodge those broken beliefs from our life. Because these broken beliefs about God have become very important to us. In a sense, they've taken an important, valued place in our heart. And it's hard to let them go. They become habitual in the way we relate to God. It's a comfortable way to relate to God and to relate to others. And not only that, they bring a web of relationships. Maybe our family and our friendships. Maybe a community, a church, or maybe a a theological tradition, and maybe a blog sphere people. And to walk away from this view of God is to walk away from a web of relationships, and that's a tough thing to do. And then lastly, there are those of us who are rediscovering and discovering God in a deeply personal way. And it's an overwhelming experience. And you can't get enough of it. And you want more of it. And in fact, you can't stop talking about it like it's a normal, real reality to you and to anyone that will listen. And in fact, you've become dangerous in the kingdom of God. Now, First Kings welcomes all of us. It welcomes the, the resistors to a knowledge of God or to a God in the Bible that really doesn't exist. It welcomes the reliers on a God in the Bible that really doesn't exist. And it welcomes the rejoicers of the God in the Bible that does exist.
It's kind of like this. If we were to look at, if David was the standard or the measure of all Israelite kings, Elijah is the standard or the measure of all Israelite prophets. Welcome to Elijah. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then he was gone. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that inspired and wrote your word and now illuminates and enlightens and transforms us to the word. So we ask that you would shine on the page. You would shine forth with brilliance and beauty, with bounty, with glory, and with grace and majesty. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look at 1 Kings, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead. Now Elijah, wham! He just slams right into you. Um, when Knox was little, Susan Ellis had a nickname for him. She called him Hit and Run. Those of you remember those days with him? Those have been around a while. Do you remember what that was like? It was like, watch it, because all of a sudden this little demon of a kid would come flying around the corner, slam into you, and his hug you, and then he was gone. He was off and he was gone. Hit and run, right? But when he slammed into you, he was giving you a hug. <laughs> and it hurt when he gave you that kind of a hug. But it was quick. Boom! Out of there. Gone. This is the first time Elijah shows up in the Bible, and it's a hit and run. He shows up out of nowhere. I mean, no long introductions. Do you see that? No long introductions. Uh... He's just there, he's in King Ahab's face, and then he's gone. Hit and run, and it all happens in one verse or half a verse. Who is Elijah? Where did he come from? You know, how does he feel about becoming a prophet in his task of being the famine and drought uh, assignment that he has to King Ahab? I mean, how does he feel about that? Don't you want to get in touch with what he's thinking and feeling? Right? Right? I mean, we get lots of personal background with everybody else we've looked at. Moses, Jacob. I mean, good night. We get tons of background. We get so much background with David, Isaiah. And when we do, we get so much background with Moses that we realize when he got his assignment or he's at his Egyptian gig, he didn't want it. He was like, can, can, can someone else do this, please? 
But when with Elijah, there's no time for any of that. There's no time for chit-chat. There's no time for personal background. There's no time for personal feelings. In fact, when we start with verse 1, it literally doesn't start with now Elijah. Verse 1 literally starts with a verb. So the literal translation is not now Elijah. The literal translation is said Elijah. Or really said he. And there's our first hint at the point of this passage. Your first introduction to Elijah is action. Speaking. The action of the Word of God. Okay? Now hold that thought, file it, don't throw it away because that's the beginning of the point of the passage. But now we've got to take a, a little time out to realize why does Elijah show out, out of nowhere and then he's gone? Why? Because these are the darkest days in Israel's history up to this point. There have never been darker days than right now. And we get that picture in 1 Kings 16. So what I want to say before I even move on to that picture, could you get this? These are the darkest days in Israel's history. And at the darkest days, the darkest hour, boom, Elijah shows up. I mean, do you see this? This is God's word immediately shows up. Or God's prophet immediately shows up. Suddenly, unexpectedly, surprisingly, but effectually, fast, furious, famously. God's word shows up in the darkest hour. God's word shows up in your darkest hour. I mean, this is so exciting because if we realize that in your darkest hour, in a church's darkest hour, whatever the dark hour is, suddenly, unexpectedly, fast and furious and effectually and famously, God's on the move. So when you're in your darkest hour, you have every reason to believe when you go to the scriptures, and you should go to the scriptures, that God will speak a word to you suddenly, unexpectedly, fast and furiously, famously, effectually. That's just a side application. Let's get going here. First Kings 16, 29. This gives us the climate. In the 30th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. So before you start thinking, oh man, what's happening? Is it just complete anarchy? Is the people climbing the walls? Is people running throughout Israel? No, this is a, this is a really prosperous time in Israel. They have a, there's no coup for 22 years. Stability of leadership, prosperity financially in Israel. And yet these are the darkest days in Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab took the title of the darkest heart in Israel from his own father, Omri. Omri held the title and then passed this prestigious award on to his son. Now, 
What did Ahab do to earn this title? The next verse, 31, goes on to say, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it. If you're looking in the bulletin, just listen. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbael, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Ahab's great evil was two things. Marrying a Proverbs 31 wife named Jezebel, right? And then forming the official state religion of Israel, Baal worship. Those are his two great evils according to this passage. Now, uh, Jezebel was from Sidon. She was a Phoenician princess. And this means Phoenicia was a coastal city, right? That was famous for its commerce and its trade and its merchants and its seaports, its economy. In other words, the translation here is that Phoenicia was famous for money and wealth. And so... In marrying Jezebel, Ahab secured his bank account forever. And all the the power and the influence, all the pleasure and the control, all the recognition, all that that brings to him, secured his bank account, right? Now, what was the Phoenician princess like? Well, we get a little picture again in 16. She was the father of Ithbael. Now, Ithbael, her father, is named after Baal. He was a priest of Baal. But he was not only a priest of Baal, he became the king of the Phoenician area. How did he become the king? He murdered his own brother. Reigned for 32 years. So, so what we have is some daughter that actually is made in the image of her own father. Because what ends up happening is that Jezebel, she wears the pants in the relationship with Ahab. And she leads Ahab... And leads Israel into Baal worship. So much so it becomes the official state religion. Do you know what you have to do in Israel to replace Yahweh as the official state religion? Do you know how powerful and shrewd and dark it had to be for that to happen? Well, this is how dark it was. What she ended up doing, she led the way in slaughtering all the Israelite prophets. Yahweh's prophets. She started slaughtering them. And then if there were any Yahweh loyalists, she started squashing them all under the guise of a justice, right? And then what she ended up doing, she smashed all Yahweh's places of worship. She was unbelievable. These days were so bad, so dark, that 1 Kings 34 summarizes the whole era like this. In his days, Heel of Bethel, this is Ahab's chief architect, all right, built Jericho. Now, if you were an Israelite and you heard Heel of Bethel built Jericho, you just gasped. What? Built Jericho? Because you'll remember that when Joshua leveled Jericho, God put a curse on anyone who tries to rebuild that city into a military town. So now listen very carefully. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. Oh, what was, did I tell you what the curse was? Okay, the curse in Joshua was when you lay the foundation, your firstborn son's taken out. When you finish it and put on the gates and the doors and all the ornaments, your youngest son's taken out. In his days, he, of Bethel, built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua. 
God's word meant nothing to Ahab and to Israel. Nothing. Now, it's not just that God's word was forgotten. And it's not just that God's word was outright rejected. As bad as that is, as dark as it is, here's what happened. God's word became irrelevant. It no longer touched people's lives. It no longer was powerful and full of life. It no longer bounced with bounty into people's hearts. It was lifeless. It was dead. It was insignificant. It was small. It was boring. Irrelevant. Now how in the world did a whole nation get to that point? Do you know what the answer is? Do you know why God's word was so irrelevant? Because Baal was so relevant to Israel. Baal worship went like this. Everything can be a Baal. Everything has the potential to pass into your soul, and when it does, exercise spiritual power and authority over you. Anything and everything can do that according to Baalism. So they said, hey, let's make a Baal of everything. Right? Let's make a Baal for love. Let's make one for romance. Let's make one for fertility. Let's make one for sex. Let's make one for achievement. Let's make one for our gifts and our talents. Let's make one for recognition. Let's make one for productivity, accomplishment. They made a Baal for everything. Now here's the shocker. The Bible says Baal worship is right. The Bible says that everything can be a Baal. Because remember what the Israelites have. They have this knowledge of what was called the Ten Commandments. And this is part of God's covenant to Israel. And so that's in their history. And that's been pushed aside. But the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments actually single out the fact, warning Israel to not have any other Baals or gods set up before them. And then it goes on to list what could those Baals or those gods possibly be. And it lists everything above the earth, below the earth, under the earth, anything in all creation. So the list is everything. So here's what happens. When we trust in something to give us life, to give your life meaning and value, to give you happiness... When we trust in something to give us life, it passes into our soul and has spiritual authority and power over us. It becomes a bail. So here's what we have. Let's take an example. Let's pick something that none of us really struggle with. Let's pick something that doesn't touch our lives at all. I mean, it touched these guys' lives. It touched Ahab, touched Israel, but it means nothing to us today. Let's just take, like, money. Right? Money. No big deal. Here we go. Money. For some of us, money can be trusted in to bring control and order and security into our lives. Right? So we can take money and use it to make sure we get our needs and our desires and our preferences taken care of. 
Or we can take money to make sure that we don't lack or lose anything of value to us. Right? Others of us, though, we don't, we don't trust money to get control and order and security. We're not into that. So we're not into the... We don't have spreadsheets on our computer and QuickBooks, and we're not worried about words like stewardship and all that kind of stuff. We don't do that kind of stuff. So what we do is, for us, money is trusted in to bring comfort to our lives. It's trusted in to bring pleasure and avoid pain. It could be extravagant. It could be simple. Money's used to gain freedom and independence to do what we want, to go where we want to go. To take care of ourselves the way we want to take care of ourselves. Now for still others of us, money could be trusted in not for control or for order or security. Not for pleasure or for comfort or ease or avoid pain. But for power. For influence. For success. And so money yells... I am somebody. I'm important. And it whispers, use me to control and influence others. To maneuver and get what you want. And to get back at so-and-so. And money sneers and says, I'm better than you. When we trust money to give us life, it passes into our soul and becomes a bale. It starts exercising spiritual authority and power over us. So some of you are probably wondering before we move on, well, what, what is money supposed to be? I mean, how should we look at money? We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the summary of all of Scripture is this, that the primary reason God gives money is so that we spend it to bless others. So how can you ever handle money like that? How can you ever handle marriage like that? How can you, how can you handle, if everything, anything can be a bail, how do you handle things without them passing into your soul exercising spiritual authority and power over you. How can that happen? Now, while everything could be a bail, there is one bail, though, in this particular time period that outranked all the others. Do you know what it was? Bail the storm god. He outranked all the other bails and everything that could be a bail. Bail the storm god sent the rain. There was nothing in the ancient Near East that was more valuable from an army to the economy, to the kitchen table, than rain. Everything in the ancient Near East depended upon water for life. In fact, today, water is 70% of the Earth's surface, fills oceans, rivers, and lakes. It's in the ground, it's in the air we breathe, it's everywhere. Every living organism and every living thing consists mostly of water. Did you know that an elephant is 70% water? Did you know an ear of corn is 70% water? Did you know your body should be, unless you're dehydrated in Texas heat, 75% water? No water, no life. So Baal, the storm god, is a big deal. 
right? Verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then Elijah was gone. This is the point of the passage. It's the great reversal of the passage. It's such a tremendous reversal that it actually takes the word of God from being irrelevant to immediately being relevant. It's such a tremendous change of events and just some simple words that all of a sudden the Bible gets relevant and starts touching our lives. Because here's the point. What Elijah is saying and what God is saying through Elijah I'm the only one that sends the rain. I'm the only one that gives life. That's the point of accept by my word. So, Baal the storm God cannot send the rain cannot give life. Money cannot send the rain. It cannot give you life. Your family cannot send the rain. It cannot give you life. Romance, recognition, respect, Success cannot send the rain, cannot give you life. There's only one who sends the rain in this passage. There's only one who gives life, except by my word. So what needs to happen to us, what needs to happen to the Israelites, and as we not, we're not going to continue on with Elijah. So this would be great. You want to see what happens the rest of the story? Keep reading 17 and 18, because what happens is all of Israel, all of Israel, comes to see and comes to desire and comes to want God as the rain and God as their life and God as their water. Because all of a sudden, when what needs to happen to us and what needs to happen to the Israelites and the whole process that leads them to that point, in fact, there's some interesting characters that happen, a widow in Zarephath, a Gentile, how what happens to her and how she comes in contact with the rain with the God who sends the rain. What needs to happen to us is that God needs to become your rain, your water, your soul refreshment, your life. And when that happens, God's word goes immediately from being irrelevant to relevant in a deeply personal way. And God's word's no longer seen as a bunch of principles be harvested and gathered and applied to your life to make it somehow better. God's word is not seen as some shallow examples to follow in your life. And God's word is not seen as nice intellectual stimulation for your life. God's word is seen as the only one that can send the rain. Give you water. Now, How does God do that? I mean, how does God become your rain? How does he become your water? How does he become your source of life? More so than money. More so than recognition. 
more so than romance. How does that happen? I want you to notice, it's fascinating. When you look at verses 2 now through 7, I mean, where do they fit in in the story? What you notice in, from verse 2 down to verse 7 is that everything in this passage depends in chapter 17 and then on into 18. All of it hangs on one man. Everything in 17 and 18 hangs on Elijah. In fact, even God's word, did you see that in verse 1? Even God's word became mysteriously infused and became Elijah's word. Because Elijah says, no dew, no rain will fall except by my word. Right? So God's word and Elijah's word became one word. Everything began to hang on one man. And then not only that, the promises of the rain coming and then the actual deliverance of the rain that will happen in a chapter later depends upon one man. And then the passage has this tension, the one that we're looking at, 2 through 7. Will this one man survive? I mean, look through 2 through 7. The poor guy, he's got, to, he's got to go to a brook and he's got to have ravens take care of him. His life is hanging by a thread. His life is hanging by... Do you all know that ravens are off the menu in an Israelite diet? They are unclean birds. So God is commanding the nastiest, the worst, the scavengers of the sky, the unclean off the Israelite diet is commanding them to feed and provide for Elijah. His life is hanging by a thread. And then at verse 7, we're left with the cliffhanger. Here's the cliffhanger. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. If Elijah doesn't make it, Israel doesn't make it. And if Israel doesn't make it, the better Elijah doesn't come. And if the better Elijah doesn't come, we don't make it. The whole world doesn't make it. Elijah is the most significant person in the history of the world at this time. Everything hangs on him. Years later, a better Elijah shows up on the scene, and this better Elijah stands up on what's called the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of the Booths, and it's this last great day of this great feast in the Israelite tradition and the Israelite history. And right at that time, what happens, they have the charred sacrifices are laid out on the, where they have been sacrificed. Hundreds of them, possibly thousands of them have been sacrificed. And then what happens, they have these huge vats and barrels of water. And at that last day of that great feast, they dump the barrels and they go washing over the charred, burnt sacrifices because it symbolizes that the stain of Israel's sin is washed and cleansed away. And it symbolizes that the waters of new life and connecting to God and connecting to yourself and connecting to your neighbor and connecting to the world happens. And at that great moment, that climax of the feast, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, and this is what he's saying, 
whoever trusts in me, instead of trusting in money, and instead of trusting in romance, and instead of trusting in your reputation, if anyone believes in me, if they trust in me instead of those things, to cover the stain of your sin, because that's what we do. We take money, we take recognition, we take romance, and we're doing a couple things with it. We're trusting it because we're trying to use it to cover the stain of our sin because we know our lives are messed up, and this is a way to cover it up. But then the other thing we're trying to do with these things, these bales, is that we want to use them to cover the stain of our sin, but we also want to use them to connect with life, with happiness, with soul flourishing and refreshment. And Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, if you trust in me instead of these things, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. That's pretty doggone good. What a deal. I bring my sin. He sends the rain. I bring my guilt. He sends the rain. I bring my brokenness and my twistedness. And he sends the rain. What a deal. So here's what we got. Jesus not only sends the rain, he is the rain. He is the living water. He is life. And he is the burnt sacrifice. And then the water that comes rushing down over that burnt sacrifice to remove the stain of your sin. You don't have to try to cover it up with other things. And not only that, He's the water of life that comes rushing over your life to connect you with God, connect you with yourself, connect you with your neighbor, and connect you to the world in a living, real way. So only God sends the rain. That's the point of the text, right? So if he's really going to send the rain, he's got to send a better Elijah. So he sends his own son. Now, if you're thirsty, Jesus says, come and drink. Amen.